Well, good morning. Welcome to Bridgewater. My name is David. Uh, I'm the guy from the feed a few minutes ago, and I have to start by apologizing that you have to listen to me twice this morning. Um, now you know a little bit of what my wife's life is like, and so maybe you can pray for her just a little bit better. Uh, well, we are, uh, we've been on staff here at Bridgewater for about a year, um, and we've been uh, really excited uh, to see all that God is doing through his church here at Bridgewater. Uh, we are a part of the Halstead campus, and so I just wanted to extend greetings from the Halstead campus. We've been praying for you guys. Um, we're going to continue to do so as we all uh, work together to make more and better disciples of Jesus Christ. Well, if you were with us last week, you know that we started a new series in the book of Nehemiah called The Good Work, because changing the world is what Jesus died for. And last week we t said that uh, we need to have a God-sized vision for our lives, that God has given us a, a specific purpose for our lives, and we need to pursue that with all that we are. And if you missed that message, I'd encourage you to uh, check out our podcast and to get caught up on that. Well, once you've figured out what God's vision for you is, you have to figure out how you can begin to accomplish that vision. And that's kind of what we're going to get started with today. We said last week that Nehemiah was facing a huge problem, right? Jerusalem's walls were in complete disrepair. And in that culture, walls were incredibly important, both practically, right, to keep people out, but they were also really important symbolically. So this was a huge problem. And so how does Nehemiah begin the huge work, the, the mammoth task that was in front of him of rebuilding those walls? Well, we're going to see today that Nehemiah's first step was to face the rubble. His first step was to face the rubble. And we're going to see that if we're going to pursue God's vision for our lives, that's going to be our first step too. We've got to face the rubble. We've got to look at the reality of the situation. We've got to look at what's true right now. It's been famously said that the first step in solving any problem is admitting that there is one, right? Well, if that's the, the first step that we took last week as we talked about the needs that we see, the needs that, uh, are, are passionate, that we're passionate about, the needs that are laid on our hearts, well, then the second step is taking a, a long, a hard look at that problem, sizing it up, seeing exactly what it is. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Well, facing the rubble like Nehemiah is, is kind of like what happens when you get into a car accident and you, something, your car is damaged, Right? If anybody who's ever dealt with insurance knows that they're going to work really hard to make sure they know exactly what's wrong with your car so that they know what kind of money they're going to have to shell out in order to fix your car, right? A couple weeks ago, my wife and I hit a deer when we were going about 50 miles an hour on Route 11, um, and we had a small little car, and so that did quite a bit of damage. Um, today, we actually almost hit two on the way here. Thankfully, we did not. We didn't repeat that experience. Um, there was two of them that were, there's one right here and the one that actually did run in the road. So thankfully, we were good though. So, but anyway, we hit a, a deer a couple weeks ago um, and it, thankfully, the car was drivable. And I, the next day, I submitted a claim to insurance and they said, okay, that's going to be about $1,800 for the damage. And I was like, okay, whatever, just got to pay my deductible. They'll take care of it. Well, when I get it to the shop three weeks later, when they can finally fit me in, right, um, the shop does an inspection and they find $4,500 worth of damage. That's a big difference, right? I don't know if you noticed those two numbers are very, very different. That was more than I paid for the car when I bought it three years ago. Um, and so the car was completely totaled, right? And while I'm not happy that my car is totaled, I am really happy that somebody took the time to actually look at the problem. They took the time to actually take the car apart and inspect it and make sure that they knew exactly what was wrong with it before they started fixing it. I mean, think with me for a minute what would have happened if they hadn't done that, if they had just relied on the insurance quote, which was 
based on pictures, by the way, that I uploaded through an app, right? If they had, if they had based their, um, their assumption of what was wrong based on that, they would have started fixing the car, and then they would have started taking things apart, and they would have spent all kinds of time and energy trying to fix something that wasn't even worth fixing, right? They would have wasted a whole bunch of time and energy, and then I don't know who would have paid for that, hopefully not me, but nobody would have been happy, right? And so I'm really glad that somebody took the time to face the rubble that was my car, even though it's total. And so in the same way, we have to face the rubble. We've got to look at the reality of the situation of whatever it is God has for us, whatever vision he's given us, we've got to look at the rubble and take a long, hard look. Well, how many times in your life have you maybe neglected to do that? Or you've started trying to work on something, but because you didn't take the time to, to really look at what the problem was, you're using all the wrong methods, or you, don't, you didn't actually understand the problem correctly. You thought it was this, but it's actually something completely different. Or how often is, have you seen somebody else do that, where they're working so hard to try and fix something, but they're not really getting anywhere, because they never took the time to really look at the problem. They never faced the rubble. See, the reality is we can't pursue the vision that God has given us for the future without facing the reality of the present. Maybe as we talked last week about the God-sized vision for your life, you found yourself thinking, you know, I've tried so many times before, but I've never gotten anywhere. Well, I don't know the details of your situation. I, I would like to suggest that maybe, just maybe, the problem is that you never faced the rubble. You never looked the problem in the eye and gave it a good, hard, long look. And that's what we're going to be doing this morning. We, we can't pursue the vision that God has for us for the future without facing the reality of the present. So let's look to Nehemiah chapter 2 to see how he faced the rubble. See, last week we saw in chapter 1 that Nehemiah heard about the condition of the walls of Jerusalem, and he's burdened for it, and so he goes to God in prayer. And then we saw in the beginning of chapter 2 that he gets permission from the king to, to go back and to rebuild those walls, and even crazier than permission, actually, he gets protection and he gets uh, supplies, which is crazy from a pagan king, right? But that's where we left off the story last week, is Nehemiah had the permission and he had everything that he needed in order to build the walls. So let's pick up the story here in chapter 2, verse 11. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 11. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down, and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to go through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I, where I had gone or what I was doing, because I had not yet said anything to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. So we see in verse 11 that first Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem. I'm sure that was a long journey, but they just skip over it with one verse. He's there in Jerusalem. And notice what his first step is in verses 12 through 15. His first step is take a, to take a long, hard look at that wall, to see exactly what the problem is. He doesn't show up in Jerusalem and tell them his wonderful plan for rebuilding the wall. 
He doesn't come in like the hero knowing all the answers. He doesn't come in saying, okay, here's my detailed plan for how we're going to fix this problem. No, he, his first step, his first step is to face the rubble. I mean, it would have been natural, maybe even normal, for him to just show up and th- assume that he knows how to fix the problem. I mean, just by entering the, the city, he would have seen the condition of the walls, at least a little bit, right? But Nehemiah understood that if he was really going to fix the problem, if he was actually going to address the problem accurately, he needed to enter into the rubble. He needed to enter into the rubble. And the same is true for you and I today. We need to enter into the rubble of whatever the situation that we are facing today. If we're going to pursue the vision that God has for us, we need to enter the rubble of our past and the rubble of our present and address the problem. See, Nehemiah, he took a a good, long look, and notice that there's no rose-colored glasses here. He's not trying to make the situation look any better than it is. He doesn't try and talk it up like it's not that bad. He's very accurate with it. It says in verse 17 that the the gates had been burned with fire. Well, that had been 140 years previously. So that had been a whole bunch of time that had passed. Have you guys ever seen those those houses that are broken down as you drive by that you can tell have just been sitting there for like, you know, 100 years or something, and it's just really sad to look at? Well, imagine that except a lot longer and before it had been destroyed by an invading army, okay? So that's kind of the condition of what these walls would have been like. They were not in good shape. Well, Nehemiah, he comes to Jerusalem, and for three days he gets a look at the people and how few people were there in Jerusalem and and how bad the condition of the walls are. And then, it must, I mean, it must have been really overwhelming for him to take a look around this city and to, to look at all this devastation that had been left by an invading army and then had just been left for 140 years. It must have been really hard to face that. You see, facing your past and your present, it can be a painful process. It can be a really painful process. I'm sure it was difficult for Nehemiah to enter into the rubble that was Jerusalem and to look at what had once been a beautiful city and what had been the place where God dwelled and had been the pride of the people of God and to see it in shambles. I'm sure that was very difficult. And I'm sure it will also be difficult for you as you enter into whatever rubble is in your life. Last week, we looked at a list of, of needs that exist in our world, and those weren't all the needs that exist by any means. Well, all those needs represent some hard truths. Sometimes it's hard to face the truth, isn't it? One of the things we talked about was adoption and, and foster care. Well, the hard truth is that every year, about 20,000 foster children age out of the system, which means that they're, they're too old and they get basically kicked out and they've never found a family. And what's really sad is that within four years, Half of them have no source of income. And the half that do, their average income is like $7,000 a year. And so that's, that's a hard reality, right? That's a hard truth. If we want to fix the foster system, that's something that we got to address. Maybe you're passionate about politics. I don't think I need to tell anyone in here that our political system is broken, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, right? Maybe you're pa- passionate about alco- uh, alcoholics or people who are struggling with addiction. Our society at large and our legal system has not done a, always done an amazing job of helping that. There's, there's a bunch of realities that we could look at, right? There's a bunch of statistics we could give, but the point is that sometimes the truth is really hard. But you have to face it if you ever want to change it. 
You have to face it if you ever want to change it. Nothing has ever been fixed by avoiding the truth, by sugarcoating it, by trying to make it look better than it really is. You have to face it if you're ever going to change it. When we see the ugly truth of the situation, oftentimes we want to just run and start over somewhere else. But God is a God who loves to restore what is broken. Nehemiah didn't get to go start a new city somewhere else. That would have been far easier. If anyone who's ever done restoration knows that that is a ton of work, it would be far easier just to start over somewhere else. But when we, when we do that, we miss the beauty, we miss the power that God displays in restoring what is broken. And these people here in Jerusalem couldn't, had to rebuild the wall, and they couldn't just go to their local hardware store and pick up some stone, right? So they had to use the rubble. They had to sift through the rubble and through the, the hurt and through the pain in order to rebuild what God had for them. Often God calls us to step back into the messes that we have made, or messes that have made, been made by others, maybe. He calls us to step back into those places and do the hard work of cleaning up, of, of rebuilding, He calls us to stay in that town or that workplace or that church where others have hurt us because he wants us to do the hard work of learning to forgive, learning to restore, learning to mend those broken relationships. He calls us to stay with that family that we have hurt time and time again because he wants us to learn to confess and to restore and to to mend. He calls us to step into those places where there's brokenness and there's, there's rubble because he is a God who restores when we step into those situations with him, when we face the rubble, we get to witness his amazing power to restore what is broken, to restore what is broken down. Well, I'll confess that for years, I didn't really want to enter into the rubble that was my family. My father had inflicted, inflicted some pain on our family, and for a lot of years, I think I subconsciously just wanted to find a new family. I mean, don't get me wrong, I loved my my sisters and my mom, but it, the pain was just so hard to deal with. It was so hard to, to deal with the reality of what had happened that I think in some ways I kind of just wanted to start over somewhere else. But when I realized that God is a God who loves to restore what is broken, and when I began to sift through that rubble, man, it's been so cool to watch God show up and be a God that restores what is broken. He's a God who makes beauty from ashes. We were in staff meeting the other day, and someone asked, What is something cool that you've seen God do in the last couple of years? And and my answer was that it has been so fun to watch my sisters become wives and become mothers. It's been so fun because you see what often happens in situations like ours where there's been hurt is that hurt then leads you to be bitter. That hurt then leads you to misery. That hurt then leads you to repeat those same patterns of the people that hurt you, right? That often happens in those situations. But my family has been able to face that rubble head on and been able to grow from it. And it's been so amazing to watch God bless them. It's been so fun to watch my my sisters become wives and become moms. And they're all married to men who love Jesus and who love them. And they're raising their kids in a loving home. And it's been so fun to be a part of. Just a few weeks ago, we were at a, a, at a party for one of their birthdays, and Piper, one of my nieces, um, wanted me to hold her after she had a scare in the pool. Um, she had fallen in the, in the pool for a couple seconds, and she couldn't get up, and, but she was okay. Um, and her mom actually was the one holding her, but as she was holding her, I was standing next to her, and those tiny little arms reached out towards me. She wanted me in her moment of need. Let me tell you, that was a pretty, pretty amazing feeling. 
But I never would have been able to experience that if my family hadn't been willing to face that rubble. I never would have been able to to experience the beauty of God restoring what is broken if our family hadn't said, you know what, we're going to face this problem head on. We're not going to ignore it. We're not going to sugarcoat it. We're not going to try and avoid it. We're going to enter into that rubble, as hard as it might be. Maybe people in your life have told you that the problem is just too big. They've looked at the rubble and they said, you know what, there's no way that that can be fixed. I'm sure that Nehemiah wasn't the first Jew in 140 years to look at the walls and say, you know what, it'd be nice to have some walls that weren't torn down. But they looked at the walls, they looked at the rubble, and they said, you know what, it's just too bad. It's too far gone. It's too hard. We can't do it. Listen to me. Don't let anyone tell you that about your life or about the vision that God has for you. Because God is a God of second chances. God is a God who brings hope to hopeless situations. He restores what is broken. He's a way maker and a miracle worker, so he can make a way. It's not up to you. It's his power. And so don't let anyone tell you that it's too far gone, that you can't do it. You can do it if you have God with you. You've got to enter into the rubble with God, otherwise you're going to give up before you start. But not only do you need God, you need others alongside of you. So you need to make sure that you don't face that rubble alone. Don't face it alone. That's too overwhelming. You see, Nehemiah, he started with just a few trusted people close to him. We saw in, in verse 12 that he brought some people with him. He hadn't publicized his plan yet. He didn't, really, he didn't bring everyone along yet, but he had a few others with him. He wasn't going to go on this by himself. And after assessing how bad things were, Nehemiah then goes to the priests, the nobles, the officials, all the leaders, basically, and he tells them about his idea. But he's able to do it with honesty. He's able to look at the situation because he's taken the time to enter into the rubble. He knows how bad it is. He knows how long it's going to take and how hard it's going to be. And with that honesty, he's able to get their help in pursuing the vision that God has for them. Let me read verses 17 and 18 for you. In chapter 2, then I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God that had been on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. So Nehemiah, he came to Jerusalem, he took a good hard look at the problem he looked, to, looked at the reality of the situation, and he's honest about that situation with others, and, and because he's honest, he's able to get their help, and, and then he really, he adds the key part, the most important thing. He says, this wasn't my vision, this is God's vision. He says, the, hand, my, the gracious hand of my God that had been on me. This wasn't Nehemiah's idea, this was God's idea, and God had been with Nehemiah every step of the way. And because he did all of that, The people begin the good work of rebuilding that wall. So here's my question for you this morning. Will you begin the good work that God has laid out for you? Will you begin the good work that he's laid out for you personally? What about the the good work that he's laid out for you as a church? You see, Bridgewater Vestal has a, a unique opportunity right now to enter into the rubble. You guys are in a a position a a time of transition in leadership. And that's, that's a hard truth, right? And Brett's here, and he's doing an amazing job filling in, but he wears far too many hats at Bridgewater to do this forever. Leadership transitions are hard. Sometimes people get hurt. Sometimes people leave. 
That's the, the rubble of our situation. But we've got to face it if we're ever going to move forward. We've got to face it. We've got to be honest with the situation if we're ever going to be, be able to move forward. I know that God is not done with Bridgewater Vestal. It was so cool just a couple weeks ago to, to celebrate three salvations that were from this campus. It'd be really easy to say, oh God, we're in a transition of leadership. It would be really easy to say that, but clearly God is not done here. Clearly God is still moving here. And it's even from all the way over in Halstead, we've been celebrating that. We've been able to see that God's hand is still on Bridgewater Vestal. So let's keep up the good work here. Well, once you've entered into the rubble, the reality is that you will likely encounter those who don't want you to succeed. So now that we've talked about what is in the way, that would be the rubble, we need to talk about who might be in the way. In order to pursue God's vision for your life, you need to engage the opposition. You need to engage the opposition. Let's see how Nehemiah does that in verses 19 and 20. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. So no sooner had they begun the work than they immediately Immediately, they experience opposition. And there's, there's three main people mentioned there, and all the three of those are important people. They're powerful people. They're connected people. And the reality is that if you want to follow the vision that God has for you, you need to be prepared for some opposition. Christians are the most persecuted minority in the world. All around the world, we experience that. And there's dozens of countries where it's even illegal to even become a Christian. You see, man in his sin has always been against what God is doing. He's always going to be against what God wants you to accomplish. He's always going to be that way. And so when you pursue God's vision for your life, the enemy is not going to be happy about it. And he's going to do whatever he can to slow you down, to distract you, to even stop you. And that includes using some people to oppose you. And that can come in a variety of different forms. For Nehemiah, it first came in the form of an accusation of rebellion. That's what we see here in chapter 2. There was an accusation of rebellion. Essentially, they're saying, you're going to get in trouble. This isn't very patriotic. I mean, wait until the authorities find out. That's basically what they're saying. And if you follow God's vision for your life, you're probably going to experience some similar accusations. Because Jesus might call you to do some things that they might seem un-American. Maybe they even will be un-American. Probably wasn't what you were thinking you were going to hear on 4th of July, right? But reality is that we should, as followers of Jesus, we should have a, a greater commitment to follow Jesus than we do to follow what our nation does, right? That doesn't mean that we rebel over stupid things or we don't submit to authorities just because we don't like them, right? But it does mean that we have a higher authority in heaven. We should be grateful, incredibly grateful for our freedoms that we have as Americans. And it's right for us to set aside a day like today to, to celebrate those things and, and to honor those who have died so that we could have those freedoms. But the reality is, if we follow God's vision for our lives, we might be accused of rebellion somewhere along the way. But you know what? I think I'm okay with that. Because Jesus, he got accused of rebellion all over the place, all through his ministry. Well, when accusations of rebellion didn't work for Nehemiah's enemy, they moved on to the next tactic, which was ridicule. If we skip ahead in the story to chapter 4, it says this. 
When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria. He said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down their wall of stones. So these enemies, they immediately, when they see that they're actually getting something done, they immediately turn to ridicule. They tell them that they're never going to finish the wall, that the task is impossible. They make fun of their attempts, right? They say, a fox could knock it over. In other words, it's so easy to knock over. It's pathetic. And when you step out to follow God, others are going to say things like, you can't do it. You look ridiculous. Don't make a fool of yourself. It's impossible anyway. You're wasting your time. Just quit now. Discouragement and ridicule is a tool of the enemy to try and stop you again, to try and hold you back, to try and distract you from what you are trying to do. And, and we see this in our culture all over the place today, don't we? I mean, Christians, when they do what Jesus tells them to, sometimes are called intolerant or racist or sexist or patriarchal. You know, the list could go on, right? But the reality is that if we follow Jesus, there's probably going to be ridicule. But again, I think I'm in good company here because Jesus, he experienced ridicule his entire ministry. Well, when the ridicule didn't stop God's vision that he had given Nehemiah, God's enemies turned to the third and final tactic, which was a threat of violence. They threatened them with violence. Later in that same chapter, in chapter 4, it says this, But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them, and we will kill them and put an end to the work. And so when the accusations and the ridicule didn't work, what did they turn to next? They turned to a threat of violence. They plot together to try and kill the Jews. And reality is that you might face some threats too. There's this myth among some Christians about the open-door will of God. Basically, it's this idea that if God wants you to do something, it's going to be incredibly easy, and there's going to be no opposition, and he's just going to make everything happen for you, and it will be all wonderful. The problem with that is that that's not really what the Bible talks about when it talks about an open door. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 8 and 9, which is one of the very few places where the Bible talks, uses the, the phrase open door, it says this. This is what Paul talking. I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me. So he's saying, there is an open door here. But notice what he says next. And there are many who oppose me. There are many who oppose me. We read in Acts chapter 19 about this situation, that there was a, a citywide riot against Paul and the Christians there in Ephesus. And so Paul is calling that, when there was a riot, when there was people who was opposing him, that to him was an open door. And so an open door doesn't mean that it will be easy. It means that God will be with you. Anything worthwhile will stir up opposition. It could come in any one of these three forms, or maybe a different one, or maybe a combination of all of them, but anything worthwhile that you're going to do for God, there's probably going to be some opposition. 
Thankfully, in this country, we don't normally experience violence for our faith, right? But it's a real reality. It happens all over our world. And yet again, I think we're in good company when, because Jesus, he experienced threats of violence his entire life. And he was ultimately killed for pursuing the vision that God had for him. So we need to learn from Nehemiah's example as he responds to these, this opposition, to this threat of violence, to this, these accusations of rebellion. If we go back to chapter 2, when he was responding to their accusations, I think he gives us a model for how we can handle those things. You see, Nehemiah's response to their accusation of rebellion against the king was not, the king gave me permission and this is all legal. That would have been true. That would have been entirely true, right? The king had given him permission, but what does he say? He basically says, we serve God and God's going to help us. He places his full trust in God. He doesn't even bother really to defend himself in front of his accusers because he knows that's not going to make a difference. That's not going to stop them. Instead, he places his trust in God. He says, God will help us. He will make us succeed. Then in chapter 4, when he experiences the ridicule and the threats of violence, he turns to God in prayer, and he also takes some practical steps. I think it's so cool. We read this, but I'll read it again, verse 9 of chapter 4. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. So oftentimes when there's a problem, what do we do? We think that we have to do, choose one of those two things. We think that we have to pray or we have to do something to fix it. But Nehemiah is a great example of doing both. They're not in opposition to each other. He prayed and he did something to fix the problem. And I think we need to do the same thing when we experience opposition. We need to take that to God. We need to take those, those threats. We need to take those whatever it is, the, the way people are opposing us. We need to take that to God. But we can also take some practical action steps continue the vision that God has for our lives. See, those who have stood up for God and followed his vision for their life, they've, they've always had opposition. And as you continue to follow God's vision for Bridgewater Vestal, there's probably going to be some opposition. Unfortunately, some of the worst of it might be from other Christians, might be from other, or at least people who claim the name of Jesus. Maybe it'll be your family. Maybe it'll be some friends. Maybe it'll be strangers. They might say things like, isn't that church in transition? Like, why would you want to stay there? I'm sure there's lies and rumors and half-truths going around all over the place that they're going to try and throw at you to ridicule you as a church. I don't know what the opposition exactly is going to look like, but I guarantee you you're going to face some somewhere along the way. The question is, what are you going to do when you face that? Will you, like Nehemiah, trust in God and trust in his hand in your life and in the life of this church? Will you take that opposition to him and say, God, I need you to deal with this, while also taking some action steps forward to actually address the problem? So as we enter into the good work that God has for us, as we pursue the vision that he has for our lives, let's first enter into the rubble. Let's take a long, hard look at the problem. Let's look at it face on. It might be painful to face that reality, but it's really the only way forward. And let's make sure that as we do that, we enlist others' help, that we don't do that alone. And then when that opposition comes, let's make sure that we take that to God, that we trust fully in what he's doing, that we trust fully in his hand. Remember, it's not up to us. This is God's vision, and he will be with us. As we take to that, all that to God. Let's continue to take some action steps to pursue the, the good work of more and better disciples here at Bridgewater Vestal. Let me pray.
God, thank you so much for this story in the Old Testament that we can look to and we can learn about how we can pursue the vision that you have for us. Thank you for being a God who restores what is broken, that you're not afraid of the rubble, you're not afraid of of the problem, you're not afraid of the sin, you're a God who's so much bigger than that, and you can restore anything that has been broken. There's no problem too hard, there's no rubble that is too great. You are a God who brings hope out of hopeless situations. And so God, as we pursue the vision that you have for us as a church here in Vestal, I pray that you'd give us help. Pray that we would be a people who are willing to enter into the rubble, to to look at the problem, stare it in the face, to not try and make it look better than it really is, but to be really honest about what is going on. That as we do that, we'd, we'd take it to you, that we'd realize that this is your vision, not ours, that you've put this in, inside of us. And God, when we experience opposition, help us to be people that take that to you, that trust fully in your gracious hand. God, we thank you so much for Jesus who makes all of this possible. We thank you for the the sacrifice that he made so that we could have freedom from our sins. We thank you for the freedom to, to, to celebrate that today in this country. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.